So every time I see a path, a road, I wonder where it goes. I just do. I, I know that maybe all of you can relate to that at some level, that sometimes when you see a road, you wonder where it goes, but I always am like that. It's a little bit odd, really. It's the first thing I think of when I see a road. Where's it go? I like to find out the end of the path. I remember as a kid, um, we had three boys in our family. We used to take long trips. Back then, there was no such thing as a DVD or anything like that, you know, in the, in the van. And besides that, we didn't even have a van. We had a car, and all three of us sat in a bench seat at the back. And I can remember numerous times when my mother was telling us to sit still and do this or do that. And finally, my father just got tired of it, and he would just go, whack! And we would settle down two or three minutes, I guess. I, it, it must have been so frustrating to be a parent with three boys in one back seat. But when my parents weren't trying to get us to do something and to cooperate, like play the alphabet game, see? Only the old people know what the alphabet game is, right? Um, you guys don't know. You'd, you'd drive along on the interstate highway, and you would try to find the letter first, right? And you'd get all the letters. And when you got to Z, you'd be the winner and all that kind of stuff. When they weren't trying to make us cooperate and play a game like that, I was doing my thing. And my thing was actually to look out the window, into the woods, or into any path or road I could see, and my mind would fly away. I would become somebody. I would become an explorer. I'd become a Native American out there in the wilderness with my bow and arrow. I mean, I just would go crazy thinking about where the path went. And so still today, especially when I'm driving by myself and nobody's there to talk to, the same thoughts hit me. I could be driving across the open plains, which I've done numerous times, going to California and see a path and start daydreaming about where it goes. When we think about this psalm, there's lots of things to think about, and we've been doing that for three weeks. This week, I want to focus on the phrase, he leads me in paths of righteousness. And I want to ask this question, what does the phrase mean? You know what? It worked in the first service. Seriously, it did. Ah, there we go. Now let me back it up. I don't want to give away the punchline. Very good. What does it mean? The first thing it means is this. It implies that there is a direction, right? Or let's put it differently. Every single path has a direction. There is no directionless path. Every path has a destination. There's no path that has no destination. Now, you might get on a path and say to yourself, this path goes nowhere. That's not true. It goes somewhere. And along the way, there's something to learn. Along the way, there's something to experience. Along the way, there's something to see, right? You can learn about nature. You can learn about yourself on a path. But eventually, it goes somewhere. Every path does. I remember running one time when I was training for half marathons and I was on a trail and I thought, I'm going to take that trail. I really don't know where it's going to go. 
but I took the trail, and it went somewhere. I ran for a long time, and finally, out of the woods, there's a house with a big no trespassing sign, and the surroundings, let's just say, were sketchy. I'm pretty sure they were cooking something somewhere on the property and it wasn't food. It was obvious that the trail had come to an end for me and I was going no further. So I turned around and I ran back that same trail, much faster than I had run to that location. Every trail, every path has a direction, it goes somewhere, right? And it might not necessarily be good. Paths are important in life. But there's something else um, about this phrase. It suggests that the shepherd knows the way. Right, if you've been with us talking about Psalm 23, you'll notice that there's two things that are always present. One's sheep and one's a shepherd. And it's also clear, according to the passage, that God is our good shepherd and God knows where the road goes. You know, there's one reason we could use by analogy to suggest that the shepherd knows the path, because we know shepherds don't take their sheep somewhere where they haven't been before. If you're a good shepherd, that shepherd, he or she, is going to take their sheep to a particular location. And even though the sheep, though the sheep doesn't think very much, even though the sheep might be coming around a bin and it can't see what's around the bin, the shepherd knows what's around the bin because he or she has been there. Well, that's comforting as it relates to sheep and to shepherds. But it's also comforting when we think of it in the spiritual sense that our Lord has been there. No matter where we're going, no matter what the destination, no matter how rough the path, no matter where we end up, our Lord has been there. He's been there primarily because He's the Lord. He knows it all. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning and the end. Nothing takes Him by surprise, but He's also been there in a different kind of way, which isn't the person of Jesus Christ. He's walked every life path already. And as a matter of fact, He's guided thousands upon thousands upon millions of sheep in every single path. He's the omniscient God of the universe, and this God in the person of Jesus Christ literally walked the path of righteousness. So, we know from this passage that it implies that there's a direction. We know from the passage it suggests that shepherd knows the way. We also know something else about this passage. It's really simple. Here's what paths of righteousness mean. It can be easily translated this way, right paths. End of story. We can extrapolate all kinds of things from right paths, but that's the meaning, the right path. You know what the right path implies? There's a wrong path. It's comforting to know that there's a right path. But it's instructive to remember there's a wrong path. 
I want to pause here for a second. In our world, it's not especially popular to suggest there's a right path and a wrong path. In our world of pure moral relativism, every path can be your own path. Find your own way. Create your own identity. Make your own choices. Make your own path. But this passage suggests, from what we know of sheep and shepherds, there's some paths that are disastrous, my friend, for sheep. And if the sheep walk down those paths, it's going to be destructive to them. And you can see the parallel. If God is our good shepherd and we are his sheep, there are some paths that are the wrong path, period. They're going to be destructive to you. They may even snuff out whatever spiritual life you have in you. They may kill you. They're the wrong paths. Don't be sucked in by your world, which says there's no difference. There is. Remember the story of the people of Israel when they left Egypt? The big word is exodus. They left. They were exited out of the country. They were on a journey. And God chose those people, told those people, I want you to follow me. I know the way. Follow my path. Don't go your own way. Don't rebel against my way. Follow me and you'll be safe. And furthermore, furthermore, people, if you follow me, I'm going to lead you somewhere. Every path goes somewhere. And where I'm going to lead you is a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when I was a kid and I heard that in Sunday school, I had images of milk flowing down where waterfalls should be, right? You put up the cup, grab some milk. Honey coming out of the rock. I thought, man, this would be a great place to live. You didn't have to work for your food. Well, of course, it wasn't exactly that. They didn't see honey coming out of a rock and water falls that turned into milk whenever they pushed the button. (laughs) That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Push the button, the water becomes milk, push the button. Anyway, that's the way I used to think when I was a kid. No, no, that's not, of course, what he meant. It it was an image, right? It was a metaphor. It It was about something spiritual, right? Yeah, but it was actually kind of literal, too. If you're an agricultural scientist, you know that the phrase milk and honey actually has sort of a scientific meaning. It actually means at peak times in the spring and in the summer, the milk and honey are flowing. The flowers are blooming just right at their peak, and those Bees are extracting the nectar and the honey is flowing in the comb. And at just the best time of the year when the sheep and the cattle and everything else that feed on vegetation is out in the field, there is literally milk flowing through those plants. And they're succulent and they're nutritious. God says to the people, I want to take you to a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's something literal about it. I want to take you to a place that absolutely, literally supplies all your needs. 
When I was a kid, I worked for a horticulturalist. Uh, he had a gigantic nursery in South Florida. And then in his retirement, he couldn't stop working. He had to do something with himself, so he maintained an enormous piece of property for a very wealthy man. And I happened to be the person who was under him. I worked for him. And he was teaching me about horticulture. Matter of fact, um, the very wealthy man thought that I should go to University of Florida and get a degree in horticulture and really do this for my life. And I said, no, I think I have other things in mind. I didn't, but I was fascinated with horticulture because this guy knew it inside and out. And he came to me one day and he said, Bobby, I want to teach you how to graft plants. I thought, oh, that's cool. Let's go graft some plants. And he said, no, not right now. Why not? Can't we just go? No, it has to be the right time. It's got to be just the right time of the year when the sap is flowing. Think milk and honey. When the sap is flowing at just the right time of the year, I'll show you how to graft. So you know what grafting was? It was taking a portion of a particular tree, let's call it, in this case a citrus tree, and taking a sliver off of that tree It was in full bloom. The sap was flowing. You cut it right out of the tree. And then you went to another tree. Way down at the base of the tree, you cut a slit in that tree. And you took the graft from the other tree, and you placed it in that slot. And then you wrapped it up tight, and you let it do what trees do which is grow at just the right time. And when you did that, you would cut off the branches below the graft and the trunk because you didn't want any fruit coming up beneath the graft. You wanted only the fruit above the graft because at just the right time, when the milk and honey were flowing, that graft which came from a navel orange, would produce a navel orange tree like you've never seen before. It was an amazing demonstration. From, can I say a shepherd? Who knew just the right time to teach me about life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The paths that are right for me. The land that's flowing with milk and honey. The just right time to teach me about life. That's what my shepherd does. So this phrase, leads me in paths of righteousness, implies that there's a direction. Every path has one. It suggests that the shepherd knows his way, and we know our shepherd does. It has a simple meaning, right paths. And it assumes we're being led. 
Uh, you might say, well, that's a big duh, Bob. No, no, it's not a big duh. Stop for a moment and think about it. Why do you need to stop for a moment and think about it? Because we think we're leading ourselves. We think we're creating the path of righteousness. We think we're creating righteousness in ourselves by walking down the path. And the whole notion is different than that altogether. It's the shepherd who's leading us. We're walking with the shepherd. And in the walking with the shepherd and in being led by the shepherd, we are growing in righteousness. A really old writer that nobody reads anymore that I love, his name is P.T. Forsyth. He's got some great pithy quotes, and one of them I encountered this week. He said, the primary purpose of life is not to find our freedom, but to find our master. Wow. Is that the opposite of everything I hear Monday through Friday? Just about. Here's the implication in that phrase. It's an implication that's steeped in in the tradition of Scripture. You don't seek your own freedom. That's not your purpose in life. In spite of what everybody around you might tell you, you don't seek your own purpose. You find your master. And when you find your master, and you know what master I'm talking about, the Lord. When you find that master, you find freedom. You find freedom from the things that weigh you down. You find freedom from guilt. You find freedom from sin. You find freedom from death. You inherit eternal life when you follow your master. Here's the reality, friends. Everybody's got one. A master. We like to think we're free and we're not. We like to think we choose our own way and we don't. We are governed by something. Every one of us, to one degree or another, are governed by some sort of master. That's why when Jesus was talking about money and God, he said, what are you going to do? Serve God or money? You can't have two masters. Jesus could have expanded that and by implication did expand it to any number of other things. The question becomes, what's our master? Who's our master? Maybe just climb in the ladder. Wherever your ladder is, is your master. Maybe money's your master. Maybe an illicit substance is your master. Maybe somebody else is your master. We all have a master. Who's yours? There's only one worthy of following. It's the one who loves us and died for us and gives us eternal life. Why follow any other master? Not only does it assume that we're being led 
I want you to notice something about this. It focuses on the shepherd. It's not about us. You know whatever, what happens every single time I focus on paths of righteousness? It becomes all about me. I'm on the path, I'm doing it, and self-righteousness creeps in like a disease in my bones. So even though I'm doing the right thing, I'm doing the right thing in a harmful way to me. But when I keep my eyes focused on the shepherd, when I remember that it is paths of righteousness, what's the next phrase? For his sake. When I bring that back into my own consciousness, I realize it's not about me at all. It's about service to this master who loves me more than life itself. In the history of Israel, God frequently would tell the people of Israel, I want you to follow me. I'm your shepherd. And I've given some responsibility to others, and I call them shepherds like Moses, but I want you to follow me. I've got your best interest in mind. Follow me. My reputation is on the line. That makes God really vulnerable, doesn't it? But in the Old Testament, that theme comes up again and again. I want you to follow me because I am your God, and I want you to show the nations that you follow me. My reputation is on the line, so I want you to follow me for my name's sake so that the world can know. You know, when we think about evangelism, one of the first things we think about and it is a part of evangelism, is speaking. It's sharing the good news. It's proactive. It's doing something. All of that is true. What we frequently don't say when we talk about evangelism is evangelism is also being. Not speaking. Not sharing. Just being. There's a wonderful passage in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas have been going around the city of Philippi and they've been proclaiming good news concerning Jesus Christ and before long they're thrown into prison and they're beat within an inch of their life and they're put in stocks, things around their arms and legs, so they can't move and during the night God is miraculous and gracious and merciful to them and he brings an earthquake and everything busts up and their stocks come loose and they could run right out the prison door but they don't. The jailer understands the situation and its gravity, especially as it relates to him. And he charges towards the prison and grabs his sword and is about to kill himself because he might as well, the Roman centurion is going to kill him anyway for losing his prisoners. And Paul shouts from the darkness, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And the jailer called for a light. He ran into the prison. And there's Paul and Silas and all the prisoners. You know when they got beat within an inch of their life? They holed up in the prison and they grumbled. No, you know the story. They stayed in the prison and they sang. They sang praises to God. I want to speculate for a minute, okay? Here's my speculation. That jailer hadn't heard the message that 
that Paul was proclaiming in the streets of Philippi. He was busy being a jailer. He never heard the message until Paul started singing in the night. And then, after that, he fell to his knees. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I heard a sermon preached on that passage by an incredible preacher, one of the greatest of our day. His name was Thomas Long. And he waxed eloquent, way more eloquent than I would ever be. And he stood right behind the pulpit and did it without moving around and flailing like I do. And it was spellbinding. And when he got to the ser- end of his sermon, he just stopped and he looked at us and he said, my friends, keep singing because the prisoners are listening. And he walked off the platform. Keep singing because the prisoners are listening. Keep living. Because somebody's watching. Keep walking. Because they can see you've got a direction. And when they ask, you say it's Jesus. So I've got a a, a simple question for all of us as we leave today. It's this. Am I walking with the shepherd or am I taking my own path? It's, it's a, a fearless moral inventory, spiritual inventory, if you will. Ask it. Try it the rest of the week. Try it throughout the day if you can remember it. Try it when the decision is right in front of you and ask, am I walking with the shepherd Or am I making my own way? That could sound like kind of a harsh, judgmental question, right? And maybe we need that. Because some of us might know full well we're taking our own way, and we need to come back. If you are taking your own way and you know it for sure, for God's sake, come back to the path. Follow the shepherd. But if, like most of you, I suspect, You're doing your best to follow the shepherd. But you get confused. And the voices all around you speak into your life. And the voices, even though they're from friends and people you respect, they become deceptive voices. Sirens, if you will. They get you off the path. So ask the question this week periodically. It will do you no more. It'll do you no harm. It'll only do you good. And ask this question, am I following the shepherd or am I taking my own path? I can't think of a better way to face our week because we have a shepherd who loves us and he calls us to follow. Let's pray. Gentle shepherd, 
Come and lead us. For we need you to help us find our way. Gentle shepherd, come and feed us. For we need your strength from day to day. There's no other we can turn to who can help us face another day. So, gentle shepherd, come and lead us and help us find our way. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.